All right, we're going to be looking at Acts 9, 32 through all of chapter 12. So we have a really huge section of scripture this week, so we're not going to read it all. So hopefully you've read through it before you came and are a little familiar with it, and we'll obviously talk about it all, but we're not going to get to reading it all. But I want you to think about when you watch a movie or a miniseries, so often the, the, the storyline will jump from character to character or from location to location. And a lot of times the people and the places seem independent of each other until at some point in the movie everything begins to merge together and the storyline and the previous details that you had reveal the depth of what's going on in the movie. So that's kind of how we watch those things. And Acts is kind of driven like that. You're bouncing around a lot. But Acts is driven by location. And we see that from Acts 1.8 where it talks about how scriptural... Let's look at that real quick. We get that right. So in Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive the holy power, or, a holy, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So those are kind of the highlighted locations as we move through kind of what our, if you want to look at it as a mini-series or our movie is. So when we open up, we see Jerusalem, which is our starting place, and Peter is our main character, and he's establishing the church. The church is being established in Jerusalem. Then we see Stephen. He comes on briefly into the scene, plays a very important role in establishing the persecution that's come upon the church, but he also serves to drive the gospel out further, which we'll see today. Saul is introduced very shortly. We don't know too much about him at all. There's no real significant details given, but we know that he's going to be a main character. We don't know exactly in what role he's going to play. Then we come to chapter 8. Philip becomes a character that we look at because he takes the gospel to Samaria and to Judea, so we see it moving out. Saul comes back on the scene with his conversion, and he set off to Tarsus, which is, again, further away. So the theme of Acts is evident in every section, and we see that continuing throughout today. The gospel is spreading, and it is orchestrated and governed by the sovereign hand of God. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit, then the authority of the risen Christ. We see all of this working in every section that we look at throughout Acts. So our section today, we're not going to read this first section, but it starts with Peter going to Lydda and Joppa. Those are areas further out from Judea and Samaria. One miracle is highlighted in each town. In Lydda, it's an unbelieving man who is told he's healed by Jesus Christ. He takes his bed and he walks. Paul, uh, Peter tells him, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're healed. Take up your bed and walk. Now in Joppa, we see a believer is raised. And she was a disciple of Christ. And Peter, as he goes in and clears everybody out of the room, sits on the foot of her bed, he prays for her, and then he says, Tabitha, arise. And immediately her eyes fly open. So we know that Tabitha recognized in that moment that Christ was the one who had restored her life. So we see these two miracles in these two little towns. These miracles are significant in that they mirror the miracles that Christ did as he walked the earth. Christ was the one who raised the lame, and Christ was the one who returned breath to the dead. In John, Jesus told the disciples that they would accomplish even greater miracles than he did. Now, greater being a number. You have more disciples, so it's going to happen more frequently. 
But in John 14, 12 through 14, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the, Son may be that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And what do we see Peter doing when he raised uh, Tabitha? He prayed. And then he told her to rise. So he, it's all through the power and the authority of, of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Now, it's in Joppa that Peter decides to stay for a while. And I love how Scripture says it, and it repeats it several times. He stays with one tanner, Simon, who lives by the sea. <laughs> Just like the way that that's written. So let's read chapter 10. And we're going to kind of camp here for a little while. There's a lot going on in this passage. We're going to read 10, 1 to um, 29, I think it is. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among them to attend with him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an holy angel to send you to, uh, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and they followed as they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and having called together all of his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for the Jews to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent to ask for you, I came without objection. I ask you then, why did you send for me? 
It's a long section. There's a lot to cover here, but it's really exciting what's going on. So as Peter's staying in Joppa for a while, meanwhile in Caesarea, which is a day and a half journeys away, Cornelius was praying. Cornelius prayed continually. Cornelius was an officer of the Roman guard, and he had learned to treat the Jewish people with respect. He was very well revealed among the Jewish people. He was a God-fear, and he treated them very well. Cornelius, however, had not become a Jewish proselyte. It's very important to understand that. Jewish was, er, Cornelius was, had not been circumcised. He had not been converted as a Jewish proselyte. So scripture tells us that God heard the prayers of this Roman guard and sent an angel to tell Cornelius that God had heard him and that there was a man named Peter who would tell him everything that he needed to know. Cornelius immediately went and sends men to go find Peter, who's staying with Simon, who lives by the sea. <laughs> so our scene now is going to jump back to Peter in Joppa, because for what is about going to happen, Peter needs some preparation. He's not ready for what's going to come to him. So Peter goes upstairs, and after a while, he falls into a hungry trance. And as he watches, the sheet is lowered from heaven. And on heaven, there's all sorts of animals. Birds, reptiles, clean and unclean. There's all sorts of animals on them. So Peter's given a command. This command probably comes from a familiar voice, one whom he loves, one who he's wanted to hear from again. But it confuses him because the voice says, rise, kill, and eat. Now Peter immediately said, no, I can't do that. Peter may have thought he was being tested. Peter didn't understand what was happening, but he knew that no was the proper answer. This was not the Jewish custom. This was not the way it was to be done. But the voice speaks again and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, just in case Peter thought he was too hungry and, and having wrong type of dreams, it happens again. And you can kind of imagine that the second time he's like, okay, this is really happening. What does this really mean? It happens again. There is a definite uh, reiteration that this is what I'm telling you, and this is what you're supposed to do. So Peter had to be stunned trying to figure out what this means. Now, to understand what this meant to Peter, we kind of have to understand the concepts and the rituals for clean and unclean, why this was such a big deal for a Jew, and how it would translate into the understanding and acceptance of other nations, because the Jewish people wouldn't even go into the home of somebody from another nation. So we have to understand why that was so ingrained within Peter. Well, God made very clear in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, there were strict laws regarding the clothes they wore, the food they ate, how they dealt with leprosy, how they dealt with dead animals, how they dealt with animals on, re on a regular basis, how they lived, what kind of work they did. There was very, very strict laws. Leviticus 18, 24 through 30, tells us how important these laws were. These were not just arbitrary things that God said, okay, for this period of time, I want you to do this. God said, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its um, iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations. Either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, 
for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that they became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when, it, you make it, uh, when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations who were before you. For whoever does these abominations, the persons who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge, never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. That's strong. And that's only one of several examples of why these laws existed for the Jews. God developed them at that period of time to teach them what holiness was because Christ had not yet fulfilled it, so they had to learn how to be holy, and they were to do these customs to be holy. So this was more than just a lifestyle choice. This was what made them clean and unclean before the sight of God. So Peter, we can understand why Peter responded and why he was so perplexed. Again, this relates to food. For example, they could eat anything that swam in the sea that had fins and scales, but anything that did not have fins and scales was unclean. So Israel never had a lobster fest, did not have <laughs> The meat they ate was due to the types of hooves on the animals, whether or not it chewed its cud, and I can't even distinguish all of it. They were to have no raw meat. They were not to touch, eat anything with blood in it, so they had no juicy raw steaks. And the sojourners had to adhere to those same laws or they would be an outcast. This was very, very serious in the way that they lived. This was so ingrained in the Jewish culture. It was part of what made them Jewish. So the surrounding nations obviously didn't live that way. And so in order to keep themselves clean, they would not even enter into the house of a non-Jew because non-Jews handled food differently and did not go through the cleansing rituals. When you became unclean, you had to wash yourself, wash your clothes. If you were unclean on a bed, you had to wash the bed and all of the things on that. And you were unclean till evening. So this was no little thing. This was a very, very uh, major part of their lifestyle. So they just weren't going to eat or associate with anyone who lived in any type of an unclean manner. So the uh, nations, Israel, kind of had this attitude that anyone outside of Israel we're not going to communicate with them, we're not going to associate with them, we're going to stay separated from them because that's what's going to keep us clean. So that was their mindset. So Peter's mind had to be racing. What did this mean? Peter had accepted that Christ's death and resurrection saved one and made one righteous. He accepted that. But this vision centered on how the Jews lived. It centered on their complete history and how they thought about everything. So he had to recognize that everything he understood about Jewish, being Jewish, was changing. That's monumental. That's pretty life-altering when you think about it. So while he was thinking through all of this, he heard voices, and he heard his name's name mentioned. And again, Peter heard another voice. The Spirit came to him and said, you go with these men that I am sending you. So Peter went to them immediately, inquired of their purpose, knowing that he was going to go with them regardless of what it was they would say. So these, these next few verses are interesting. When you look at this, you have to think what a difficult change this was for the people. But God was making this transition as easy as possible. He was removing every barrier and obstacle that would make it more difficult. Because um, Cornelius 
was a man whom the Jews respected. These men that came to Paul or came to Peter were talking very highly about him, and they talked about how the Jews respect him. So if there was ever a person that they would want to be brought into the church, it would be Cornelius. So the Lord had was very gracious in allowing this to be a good man that the people respected. Had it been somebody nobody knew or somebody who had been antagonistic, if it had been the present-day Saul of the Jewish nation, of the Gentile nation, that would have not have been received well. So the Lord was very careful and very uh, specific to details and how he worked this out. So John, Paul, Peter invited them in, and they spent the night. So the next morning they sent off, and some of the brothers of Joppa traveled with them. So they've got this nice little band of people that are traveling one, from one place to another. Now, when Peter arrived, he had a room full of people waiting for him. That must have been exciting to walk in, a little nerve-wracking, not knowing exactly what was going on. Cornelius had invited his friends and family, invited everyone he knew. And when he saw Peter, he fell on his knees before him. Peter, already evidencing he understood and was accepting the message of the vision that he had learned, first of all, entered his house, but leaned over and touched him and lifted him up. A Jew did not touch a Gentile. So even that in and of itself was an act of recognizing and submitting to the changes that the Lord was, gonna, was doing. Peter removes the elephant in the room, so to speak. He addresses the laws regarding entering the homes of a Gentile. He recognized that God was changing the rules, and Peter was going to accept those changes. Probably as Peter was traveling to Cornelius' home, I mean, he had to be he may not have been real talkative because he was thinking a lot about what had just happened and what was going to happen and what is it you're doing, Lord, and how do I make myself a part of it and not being against it? We don't know, but it seems like those would be the normal things you would go through. Well, in Mark 7, 14 through 23, so this is during the time of the Gospels when Christ is walking on the earth. The church has not yet been established. Christ says there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that are out come out of a person are what defile him, which is not what the Old Testament laws were. The Old Testament laws were what went in you or what you touched, what was outside of you, is what defiled you. And when he entered the house and left the house, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then you are also without understanding. Christ is still speaking. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? And is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetous, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So what defiles us is already within us. It's what comes out, not what we take in. Next, Peter asks these people, why have you called me here? What is my purpose? We notice at every opportunity, Peter makes it very clear that he is only a mouthpiece of Christ. He is not anyone to be worshipped. The disciples never seek to accept any, seek glory, nor do they accept any of the glory that the people tried to give them. When he fell to his feet, Peter pulled him up and said, I'm a man just like you. And now he's asking them, what do you want from me? which Peter had already been told. He knows. But Peter, by saying it to them, really removes any 
thought of this man must be an angel, this man must be a God, he knows why he's called here. They remove all of that doubt that I am nothing special, I am just a mouthpiece to the Lord. So Cornelius recounts his vision and basically says to Peter, please tell us everything we need to know. So let's look at 34 through 48. Oh, I mean, um, okay. So Peter opened his mouth, which translated means the Holy Spirit spoke through Peter. And he said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea from the beginning after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. (coughs) And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the only, that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter opened his mouth and the Holy Spirit spoke through him. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now this is not introducing a work salvation. It's what it sounds like. But we know through scripture that that's not the tenor of scripture. So we can't imply that here. There has to be a different meaning, and we have to understand what that meaning is according to what fits into the whole of scripture. So what he's talking about here is that if you fear God, if you fear God, you will do what is right, which is seeking after God, and that is something God will respond to and through which you will find salvation. So if you fear God, you're going to do what is right. What is right is seeking after God and being open to salvation, and that God is going to accept. Does that make sense? So it's not a work salvation. It's just recognizing that that fear of God is going to lead you to doing what is right. So we know clearly Cornelius was open to wanting to know what God required of him, and he was willing to do anything that would enable him to know God. He knew there was something that he didn't understand completely. He knew that there was something that God would accept, and God will respond to that, and he sent the gospel just as he did to Cornelius. Now, the vision that Cornelius had did not hold the gospel. Cornelius was not saved through a vision. Only what came through the, go- through the vision was information that Cornelius never would have otherwise had. There were no other mouthpieces. There was no one to go to Cornelius. There was no one to tell him. So that is how the Lord revealed 
information that Cornelius needed to know to be able to bring him to the saving gospel. So Cornelius knew he didn't have enough, but he didn't know what it was, and he knew that God was what he desired. So Peter stated that anyone from any nation who does what is right will be acceptable to God. Peter said that. That came out of his mouth. So the gospel he was saying is open to all nations, but I don't think Peter really understood what he was saying. I think the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. I think he was speaking more than what he understood. I think he was grappling with and recognizing these things as he's moving forward. You know, you can understand a part of something, but not all of it. So we see this transformation, especially through the rest of the, the, um, the passage as we look through it. Now, as Peter continues, it's interesting to know he talks about the word that was sent to Israel. He talks about Israel, what Christ did for Israel. He's not talking about all nations. He's talking about Israel. He declares to them the message given to the Jews. He recounts what they would have heard. They would have heard about Jesus and what he did. Peter tells them about his resurrection. They would have heard the rumors of those things. They would have had no way to substantiate it, but they would have heard rumors that this Christ supposedly raised from the dead. Then Peter gives his authority as to why he can speak to the fact that Christ did raise from the dead. He said, Christ appeared to us, we ate and drank with him, and he gave us the authority to recognize and to be able to proclaim that he was raised. So Peter tells them the gospel message, but you never see it specifically extended to them. He's just telling them what Christ did for the Jews. He's telling them God's message to Israel. And then look what happens. All of a sudden, in the middle of it, they begin speaking in tongues. Just like the Jews did in Jerusalem. Peter had to stop mid-sentence. He had to just be frozen, looking at them. And you can kind of picture him casting a glance to the guys with him, like, are you seeing this? Is this really happening? Am I seeing what's going on? And they all looked shocked, too, so he had to be thinking, okay, good, this is really happening. Okay, I'm not seeing things. What's going on? While Peter was recounting the message to the Jews, this group of, of people collectively, each in their own minds, were agreeing with what they heard. Yes, Christ came. Yes, he died on the cross. Yes, he rose from the dead. Yes, I believe salvation is brought through him. And as they are believing and receiving, God sends the sign. I, I can't imagine how powerful that must have been. So a couple of things we have to take note here. Other than Cornelius' vision, there's no other miracles performed in Caesarea. Every other passage up to this point, I don't think we see it everywhere else, but every other passage up to this point, every new town that somebody goes to, there's signs and wonders, there's healings, there are things that authenticate the authority of the apostles. But you don't see that here. They don't need it. They're so ready. They don't need it. It's not So I think that tells us that salvation does not have to be accompanied by signs and wonders, as some people believe. We see perfectly here that they don't. Now, Cornelius received information, but there was no healings. There was nothing else going on here. These people didn't need it because they were ready to hear and believe the word of the Lord. Now, we'll see signs and wonders again. It's not that they've ceased, but in this particular situation, it wasn't necessary to accompany salvation. Secondly, the sign that's portrayed, I think it's twofold. It's for the new believers to recognize that, yes, we really can have salvation. But I think it's mostly for the Jews <laughs> to confirm to them 
that this is what God is doing, the Jews needed would need proof to really believe that the gospel had now gone out to the Gentiles. There was no other way to authenticate what God was doing among the Gentiles except through the receiving of the tongues just as it did in the establishment of the church to the Jews. The same thing was done here to establish the church among the Gentiles. And neither Peter nor his companions could deny it. Could not be denied. Therefore, baptism was in order. Then they asked Peter to stay, and he stayed for some days. We don't know how long that is, but he stayed. Now, while Peter's there... He knows that the leaders back in Jerusalem are going to have a cow over all of this. This is not what they would expect. No one expected this. So he knew eventually he was going to have to go back and deal with them in Jerusalem. So let's read chapter 11, 1 through 18. This is a great section. There's so much in here. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised party said to, criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's what they were concerned about. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And I'm not going to read through all of that. We've already, he just tells them what's happened. Um, let's go over to 15. And as they began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as it did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that I could stand in God's way. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I've got to find my place here, sorry. Okay, so we're back at Judea. They're confused. Peter, knowing he has to come, comes to make his road trip to go back. So on his arrival, he is uh, greeted with suspicion. They're not very happy with him. I don't think there were traditional greetings and handshakes as Peter walked up the way. They wanted to know, why were you with the uncircumcised? Patiently and with understanding, Peter gives the details of what transpired. He goes through everything that led up to it. He's had time to process through this, and he was able, after living through it and having a few times to think about it, so he was able to articulate what he did not understand before. It's the first time that Peter says, I want to give them the saving gospel. That's what God called me to do. So the previous words of the Lord made sense because John talked about, or the scripture talks about, John will baptize with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Christ established the church through Peter, and he allowed the Holy Spirit to baptize these uh, individuals as believers in the church. This baptism was not to be controlled by men. It would not be extended to whom these men felt it worthy to be extended to. It would be deemed by the saving, sovereign hand of God alone. Peter's message was authenticated by the six witnesses that came with him, and the Lord removed all those barriers to make these men recognize. They did not give out baptism. That was not their job. Their job was to recognize what the Holy Spirit had done. So the coming of the Holy Spirit upon this new body was clearly not a whim that came upon Peter. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. When Peter finished speaking, these men had to just be speechless. 
And you just see him slack-jawed and wide-eyed, and they stared at one another. But because these men were willing to accept truth and were willing to follow what God was doing, rather than to enforce their own understanding of what they thought ought to be done, their mouths turned to smiles, and they turned to joy, and they praised the work that God was doing. Here's a lot in there, just in that one section, of how often we try to force our own agenda, our own understanding, our own desires of what we think God ought to do, and we fight what God does. These men took time, they pondered it, but they accepted the truth that God had revealed to them. Now we're going to go to Phoenicia, Capris, and Antioch. This is a much further location from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. So now it's going to the outermost parts of the earth. These believers had moved away from Jerusalem because of the persecution that came upon Stephen. Stephen's death was necessary to move the gospel out. The Lord allowed him to be martyred. He allowed that persecution to come on because it would be too easy for this little group of believers to stay together and be safe and to be comfortable and just be with one another. But the coming persecution forced them to move out. And when they moved out, they took the gospel with them. Now let's read a couple verses here. I'm going to start in 20. Um, they were with them. Oh, okay. So they spoke to no one but the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who had come into the Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist also preaching the Lord Jesus. We saw earlier Hellenists referring, referring to Greek-speaking Jews, but Hellenists actually just means somebody who is immersed in the Greek culture. So it's both Jews and non-Jews. We can pretty much draw that this is Greek, non-Jews, because of the word but. They were speaking primarily to Jews, but some people spoke to the Hellenists. So there's obviously a difference there. And just from what we've seen, the church being opened up to the Gentiles, it would make sense that that word is continuing to the Gentiles. Um, and the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas and Antioch. Quite a different uh, reaction there. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And the Antioch, and the, in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days a prophet came, uh, he stood up and foretold the spirit there'd be a great famine, so they determined that they would respond to the other churches, they were going to send a gift through Barnabas and Paul, okay, so that's what's happening there. Um, so then we go there, the believers had moved away, sorry I said some of this already. <coughs> So they sent Barnabas. Barnabas means encourager. And Barnabas just loved the Lord, loved to encourage people, loved to support people. He was the one that stood up for Saul after the initial, uh, when he first became a believer, he was the one that presented them. Now Paul at that time, the people were so, had so much animosity towards him and couldn't get past what was done that he had to leave to Tarsus. But Barnabas never forgot Saul. Barnabas knew, and Barnabas wanted him to be able to be a part of the Lord's work and a part of what was going on. So Barnabas, as the church was growing, was willing to go find Saul to be a part of this work. 
And scripture says that Barnabas encouraged these people to remain steadfast, to remain faithful. They undoubtedly heard of the persecution of the church. And Barnabas wanted them to be supported, wanted them to be secure in their faith so that they would not fall when persecution came. And so he brought uh, Paul with him to be able to do this. Now, it says he remained there a year. And there's not a whole lot of time markers in Acts. So if you read it, you think this is all one continuous event. It's just one thing after another. But we know from Galatians that this is probably seven or eight years after Paul's conversion. So this, everything that we've read in Acts thus far has probably been eight to ten years, somewhere around in there. So that's kind of what the time marker that we can look at. Now here is also where they're first called Christians. That took a long time to catch. It didn't catch necessarily right at this moment, but it's where it started. It was probably originated from the pagan culture, referred to them as Christ followers to differentiate them from themselves. So it was just kind of a, not necessarily negative, but just kind of, oh yeah, they're Christ followers. That's, that's who those people are, as they were talking about it. Now chapter 11 closes with the inner working of the church. We see in this section that the church didn't see themselves as independent of one another. This is a Greek church, but they still felt very connected to the Jewish church in Judea and Jerusalem. They wanted to be a part, they wanted to help, and they wanted to serve them. So this uh, famine was coming, and they wanted to provide funds to be able to support that. So they understood that they were individual bodies, but they were part of something much bigger, and they had a heart to care for each other in the time of need. So then in chapter 12, while all this is going on, King Herod is feeling very generous and wanted to please the Jews in Jerusalem. And what pleased the Jews in Jerusalem was persecuting the church. In, his most earth, in this earthly power and authority, he arrests James and has him killed. It pleased the Jews so much that he arrested Peter and wanted to have him killed too, but his timing was real bad because he arrested him on the day the Passover started, so he had to stick him in jail because he couldn't do it during Passover. Paul knew, or Herod knew, how Peter had escaped before. He heard how Saul had escaped, so he knew that these men could get out of things, and he was determined that wasn't going to happen again. So he set four squads over Peter. Each squad consisted of four men. So there were two chained to Peter and two guarding the door at all times. And because there were four squads, these men were not overtaxed and overtired. They were fresh and alert, and nothing, according to Herod's power, was going to stop him from uh, carrying out his plan. I want to read, starting in chapter 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. Wrap your cloak, follow me. They went out. He finally came to himself and realized he had been res re uh, rescued. In verse 11, he says, I am sure now that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from, a and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting death. When he realized this, he went to a friend's house. They didn't recognize, uh, remember Rhoda didn't open the door because she recognized his voice, but she was so giddy she never opened the door. The people inside said, oh, no, it's his angel because he is going to be killed. Okay, so that's where we're going to pick up here. 
we know from the rest of the story that it was generally accepted that Peter was going to die. The death of Stephen, the recent death of James, and all the martyrs in between had taught them that death happened to believers. They did not always escape. It was a reality. In verse 11, Peter is astonished because he says this is not what the Jews would expect. It's not what he was expecting. And the people that he went to thought it was his angel. They didn't even open the door because they thought it would be his angels. Nobody expected Peter to survive this. And what did Peter do? He slept. He slept so soundly that the angel coming in with his bright light didn't wake him up. He had to shake Peter awake. He was full asleep. How do we sleep in the midst of trials and threat? But Peter knew his days on earth were governed by an almighty God. He knew his breath would not be extinguished one day earlier or one day later than his great almighty God would deem. Peter understood that in life or death, purpose is far greater than his own agenda or his own life would be accomplished. And he was comforted by that thought. That is a hard truth. There is no doubt that that is a hard truth. And we want to fool ourselves into thinking that our life or the lives of those we love is more safe in our own hand and in our own control than relinquishing control to a sovereign God. We somehow think we can extend our days and we get insecure and fearful when we consider the timing of the Lord as if somehow he doesn't understand or doesn't love us as much as we love ourselves or others. Peter didn't live in that mindset. Therefore, he was free to sleep soundly. There's a lot to learn from that. Once Peter's miraculously re released, he visits his friend when they finally open the door. Scripture says Peter moves on to another place. It's an unnamed place. We don't know where Peter goes from there. When we started in Acts, Peter was a central character in our story. He was establishing the church. It's upon mature, uh, Peter that the church would be established. Acts highlights the foundation to both the Jews and the Gentiles of the church. Now, Peter's documented ministry is pretty much finished. The focus is going to move from Peter to Paul, who will be Saul, as we continue on. It doesn't say, say that Peter's ministry is over. It's just not documented. We know in 1 Peter, he greets the areas of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and other areas that Paul is not recorded having visited. So it's thought Peter went to those places and he wrote those letters to encourage them. So just because he's not highlighted doesn't mean that he's falling off the scene. The Lord is using him in other areas. So let's jump back to Jerusalem again. Herod's in an uproar all over again because these people are gone. Peter was nowhere to be found, and 16 men met their deaths that day. Now, sometimes that always bothered me. Why would these men suffer for something that was not their fault? Their lives are so just extinguished by a uh, controlling, self-absorbed king. I have to think back to C.S. Lewis and a boy and his horse. Uh, a young girl of the king has run away from home, and she is struck after she meets Aslan, she's struck with guilt that she feels responsible for the beating her nurse would have received because she left. She's like, how much more is she going to receive because of what I have done? And Aslan's response to her 
is I am telling you your stories, not her, your story, not hers. No one is told they're any story but their own. Meaning, I have a reason for the nurse. I have a reason she's going to suffer. Meaning, I have a reason for these 16 men. I have a reason they suffered. They had their own story. They were either meeting judgment, and it was their time, and this is how I allowed it to happen, or he had another purpose that's not recorded. So we have to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. It's all within his hands, and we don't have to understand it to trust it. So now Herod stays with, scene stays with Herod because he's got a beef with some people, and these people from these other cities have got to get on the good side of Herod because their food supply depends on him. So they get this guy, uh, the, who is he? I don't know, one of, the, one of Herod's people, Sweet talks him into having Herod come have a day with them because they've got to make this right with Herod. <coughs> so the chamberlain sets up this for the peace of the king. So on a certain day, the king arrives. He gives this great speech. The people, you can imagine, who are desiring and desperate to please the king respond by puffing him up as much as possible. You're a god, they cry out. You're the voice of a god. They go on and on with him. And it kind of has the emperor's new clothes feel to it. It's all a bunch of hot air. But the king is so self-absorbed, he is taking it all in as if it's 100% true. He's loving every moment of it. So let's read this because we cannot let Herod's demise go unread. All right. So Herod puts on his royal robes, 21 sits on his throne, delivers an oration. The people were shouting the voice of a God, not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. So you can kind of see Herod sitting there, standing there with his arms up, and he's so proud, and he's drawing in that big breath of how great I am, and before he can exhale, he drops to the ground, dead. The worms that had previously entered his body attacked, and he breathed his last. God's praise and glory will not be shared. No ruler is to take the glory that is due an almighty God. In Isaiah, there are repeated warnings to other kingdoms and other nations who takes the glory from God. It is not to be so. Pagan kings and rulers have an innate knowledge that there is a ruler greater than they. They ought to. I have to say, I was very pleased to even hear our own president say he understood and acknowledged that he needed prayer that his responsibilities were far greater than his own ability to carry out on his own. He is recognizing there's a power. It doesn't mean he's saved, doesn't mean anything, other than maybe he won't be eaten by worms today. Because he's recognizing that there is a God who is greater than he. As Herod's life is extinguished, God's God accomplishes his purposes. His word increased and multiplied. Herod wasn't even a hiccup in the plan of what God was doing. Herod thought he was controlling the events of his reign. He thought he could determine when men, li when men, li men lived and died. He thought he could control the hearts and the attitudes of the people that he ruled. He thought he was supreme, 
but he was nothing more than a tool in the hands of the Almighty God who truly reigns. God has been and will continue to execute his plan and purposes for his glory. It is God who works and wills according to his own plan. This is really where our section ends. The next verse here, I'm going to let Tracy take over next week. It's a hinge verse. Uh, it opens up a new section. We see Barnabas at work again. He and Saul return from having taken the money to Jerusalem, so they're coming back. And Barnabas, true to nature, is bringing John Mark with them because he wants more and more people to be a part of the work that God is doing. That work will not stop. So as we close up real quick, there's several takeaways. I love the response of Peter and the Jewish leaders when they were confronted with the true, clear truth that God was establishing. They released their previous beliefs and allow God to change their minds and to establish their agendas for the church. We have to come to scripture and release our preconceived notion and ideas that have been developed by our worldview, by our own experiences, and even those great people we've loved who told us the wrong things. We have to release those things and allow scripture to shape our worldview and our understanding. God is not giving new information. He's not giving us new details. But we have hard enough time accepting what he's already revealed. And we have to allow ourselves to be shocked, to think, and to accept, and to praise over what God has revealed that is in his scripture, releasing the preconceived notions that we have. We also have to see the sovereign hand of God's control. What protection there is in his hand. We don't need to fight it. We don't need to fear it. We don't need to think that it's going to shortchange us somehow. When do we ever see that evidenced in Scripture? And yet that's how our sinful mind thinks. It's just the way that we think. Even when circumstances look obviously against God, he's not taken by surprise or derailed. He never has to go to plan B because plan A always works perfectly. This is why we can sleep and sleep soundly in the face of fear and torment. This is why we can rest in the security of ourselves and our family and our friends. God will never do what is wrong. He will never steal from us. He will never destroy us. Doesn't mean things won't happen. Doesn't mean circumstances aren't difficult. Does not mean we won't lose people we love. But he can give us the encouragement and the security to walk through it knowing that that person's life was ended. There is more to be gained at this point by their death than by their continuation. We have to trust the Lord with that. He has a reason and plan for that. God is never surprised. He never utters the word, oops, and he never alters course. Even our impending harm will work for our good and the good of those around us, and that should cause us to rejoice. His purposes are never insignificant or without reason. He is a God we can trust and a God we can rejoice in. So... Went a little long. All right, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your.